This morning we are in the book of Acts, chapter 25. The book of Acts, chapter 25, as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. This morning we are starting with verse 23 and going to look at all of chapter 26 from the book of Acts. We're reading this to you from the English Standard Version. I know it's a long portion, so I will try to read fast this morning. Acts 25 beginning with verse 23. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought to not live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that, after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate that the charges are not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand, and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all of the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and who and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I had heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from their darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For there is reason the Jews, or for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God and to stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And King Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This morning I have a question for you as the title of the sermon. How will you respond to the resurrection? How will you respond to the resurrection? That question must be answered for all today. Jonathan Edwards from his sermon, Divine and Supernatural Light, has a great illustration to make a point on head knowledge. This is what he says. Your mind can know honey is sweet. People people can tell you it's sweet. You've read books about it, etc. But if you haven't actually tasted it, you know with your head, but not with your heart. When you actually taste it, you experience it for yourself. You know it in a full way, and you can know it in your heart. Church, we often know things in our head or in our mind, but we fail to apply that knowledge. How often do we see doctors who smoke or who are overweight? They know what they need to do in order to be healthy, but they fail to apply the knowledge. That same thing is true spiritually as well. We can know the truth, but if we fail to make a personal application of that truth, it does us no good. We see this in the life of Christians as well, don't we? Many people running around claiming to be followers of Christ, saying that they are believers in Christ and they have received Christ as their Savior, but their lives don't reflect that they have received Christ as their Savior. In fact, there seems to be little difference between the person who professes Christ as Savior and the American culture that we live in today. I'm not talking about things that could be considered gray areas, but I'm speaking of blatant sin. Supposed Christians watch as much porn 
They commit as much sexual immorality and they engage in as many sinful acts just as much as the rest of the culture today. In a joint venture commissioned by Proven Men Ministries and conducted by the Barna Group, researchers found that 77% of Christian men between the ages of 18 and 30 view pornography at least monthly. 77%. And 36% look at least once a day. 32% of these men admit having an addiction to porn, while 12% think they are addicted. If that's not bad enough, 63% of pastors surveyed confirmed that they are struggling with sexual addiction or sexual compulsion, including but not limited to the use of pornography, compulsive masturbation, or other secret sexual activity. Pastors, 60 Nearly 20% of of those uh, calls received to focus on the family's pastoral care line are for help with issues such as pornography and compulsive sexual behavior. Here's what can be even more disturbing. All over our nation today, pastors who have committed sexual improprieties remain in the pulpit preaching to the people. Church, many claim to be followers of Christ, yet their lives portray something different. In our text today, we have one of the longest defenses that Paul gives in the book of Acts. This one is before Festus, King Agrippa, and his sister, also lover Bernice, as well as other important people. This is the third time we see the testimony of Paul's conversion repeated in the book of Acts. And as we read this, we see Paul making a specific focus on the Gentiles and how the risen Lord Jesus had given him the charge to go to the Gentiles so that they would repent and turn to God. Paul's testimony rests on the fact that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. It is my belief as we read this that we are forced to ask ourselves this question how will we respond to the resurrection? What I am saying is this when we say that we believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, what difference does it make and should it make a difference at all in our lives? Or do we instead just continue to live the same way the wicked world lives because if it does not make a difference we have a knowledge in our head about the resurrection but we have never made it into or that knowledge has never made it into our heart if you truly believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead then it is my belief and I believe the scripture supports it that our lives will indeed reflect that John Calvin says those who separate God's grace in salvation from repentance pervert the gospel yet many today claim that repentance is not necessary That you can come to Christ and your life doesn't need to change. However, if we look at the entirety of Paul's defense and we focus in on verses 17 through 20 of Acts chapter 26, we will see something very clearly. We see that Paul says he has sent to the Gentiles from the resurrected Lord. So first of all, the resurrection is fact. 
Now I know perhaps you are sick of hearing these sermons about the resurrection. I think this is like the third week in a row, maybe, or at least the second. But uh, I, I have more to say because the scripture has more to say. Secondly, look at Paul's message. Paul goes so that they may turn, or he says, so that they may turn from their darkness to light and receive forgiveness of sins. That is repentance. Look down at verse 20. And also the Gentiles that they should repent. That seems pretty clear. And so we have Paul making it, making it clear that the resurrection is fact and that because the resurrection is fact, the only logical response for us concerning the resurrection or for anybody concerning the resurrection, when they come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is fact, the only logical response is repentance. So let's first see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is historical fact. Paul is not defending himself before a bunch of people that believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, why would he be defending himself in the first place? Paul does not start off with Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, therefore repent and believe. That's not what he says. As we have seen before, Paul is a master at presenting things, even when Paul does not get to the resurrection, or when he does get to the resurrection, Festus says to Paul, he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're, you're crazy. You've gone nuts. You've fallen off your rocker, or whatever the saying is today. However, look how Paul starts off. He says he's going to make a defense against the accusation of the Jews, which everyone knew was concerning the resurrection. And so he begins with this kind of possibility of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And look, he, he, look what he moves to. He moves into his personal testimony. And look what he says. He describes how he lived as a Pharisee. He starts describing this is how I lived as a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he had hope in the promise by God to their forefathers. Then in verse 8, he asks, why is it so incredible that God raises the dead? He then covers how he saw the resurrected Lord and how it changed his life. And then he makes it clear that his views are in line with all of Scripture. And remember, King Agrippa would have had some knowledge of the Scriptures because he was raised with that background. And then finally, he drives his point home that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Now, what I want to do is I want to take what Paul says and I want us to see how he proves the resurrection historically. So we know that it's historical fact. Paul says the res res resurrection of Jesus Christ is historical fact and he backs up that claim and, and I believe that scripture backs up that claim. First of all, the resurrection is historical fact because we see that the power of the resurrection comes from God. Paul makes this clear. When Paul starts off talking about his early life as a Pharisee, in verse 6, he speaks of the hope he had and the promise of God to the Jews. The hope that he is speaking of is the hope of the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. Now look at what he says, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. That's what he says. To which our 12 tribes hope to attain. How are they possibly going to attain any hope of the Messiah unless there is such a thing as the resurrection of the dead. 
He's speaking of the 12 tribes. He says, of which they hope to attain. They have no hope if there is no resurrection of the dead. And so he's making it clear that there must be a resurrection of the dead. The answer is, they can't. If they're going to experience the promise, which they believe they will experience this promise, then they must believe in the resurrection. Otherwise, their worship is in vain. And Paul says, it is for this very hope that I'm being accused. It's this hope that I have that you guys are accusing me. And then he says, why is it incredible that God raises the dead? And so Paul's saying, you believe in God as revealed in the scriptures, then you must believe that he has the power to raise the dead. Then as Paul will later appeal, the very fact that God raised Jesus from the dead proves that he is the Messiah. Here's the logic, church. You believe in the God of the scriptures, meaning you believe that God created all things. He spoke all things into existence, including life then you must believe that he has the power to raise people from the dead. Otherwise, he is not all-powerful. And so, Paul says, is making it clear, the power of the resurrection comes from God. Secondly, the resurrection is affirmed by eyewitnesses in verses 12 through 15. Paul again recounts his encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. Now, some people try to say, well, Paul was hallucinating. Maybe he had heat exhaustion or something like that and did not actually see the risen Lord. If Paul was the only one to make that claim, then maybe someone would have a case, but he's not the only one. However, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes it clear that the risen Lord appeared to Peter as well as the other apostles and over 500 followers at once. And most of these people, when Paul makes that claim, were alive at the time. And so in other words, Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe that that the risen Lord appeared to me, there are over 500 eyewitnesses that you can go talk to. And, And you'll know that he appeared to them as well. The fact is, the apostles were intelligent people. They were sane people. And you only have to read the scriptures and read what they wrote to clearly see that they knew what they were talking about. So that all these men were insane or somehow hallucinated, the same thing is absolutely crazy. And even more crazy is to say that over 500 people had the exact same hallucination at the exact same time, which is nearly impossible. One might even argue that that would be a far greater miracle than the resurrection. Think of it. These disciples, after the death of Christ, were cowering in a hidden room, afraid to even come out. And a few days later, after the resurrection, they are emboldened to the point that they would not even be silenced no matter the persecution they face. Now, invariably what happens is people think, well, yeah, they saw Jesus resurrected. No wonder they could be so brave and so bold. But what about us? I mean, it's over 2,000 years later. We don't get to see the resurrected Christ. How are we supposed to be brave and bold? And how are we supposed to believe in the resurrection? To be honest, we believe things we don't see all the time. And we believe people that we don't know all the time. As long as there's some reasonable evidence to believe it. You came into church, 
You sat in the pew because you believed it would hold you. Right? You thought, surely this thing's going to hold me up. You didn't examine it. Now, I'm careful. Last time I used this illustration, somebody started examining the pews. <laughs> they will remain nameless. They came up to me and said, I remember we re repaired one of those pews. I was like, so he was making sure that the pew was still in good repair. But uh, uh, you, you sat down, right? You didn't check it out. You believe in things all the time that you don't know. Did you check your shoes this morning for spiders? Before you put your foot in? Probably not. You got in your car and drove. Did you make sure the brakes were working? Did you give a thorough inspection of your car? Nope. Some of you ate breakfast this morning. How do you know there wasn't poison in it? You don't. I'm not trying to create hypochondriacs, by the way. <laughs> I don't want people like now examining everything. You get the picture. We trust people. We trust things all the time that we don't necessarily see. Isn't God more trustworthy than people? The resurrection is affirmed by eyewitness testimony. And if we reject it, we'll be held accountable. Thirdly, belief in the resurrection changes lives. Look at verse 11. Paul speaking of hunting down Christians. He says this, And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In raging fury, he said, and yet here he is now a prisoner for the cause of Christ. Not only that, but he has been beaten because of his faith. He has gone through hardships because of his faith, and he is not showing any hatred towards his enemies. This this man who had raging fury to stamp out Christians is now compelled by the love of Christ. How in the world does that happen? Because Paul saw the resurrected Christ. He saw the risen Jesus. How did the apostle go? How did the apostles go from cowards to conquerors? Because they saw the risen Christ. If you truly believe God has a power to raise his son from the dead, it changes lives because you know that what he says is true. That you can take it to the bank. That when he makes a promise, it's going to happen. And then, therefore, all scripture that you read can be taken as historical fact. And so it has power to change lives. Fourthly, the resurrection is a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at what Paul says in verses 22 and 23. He says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is not just making this stuff up, but the Old Testament prophesied of the resurrection. Isaiah chapter 53, Psalm chapter 16, Psalm chapter 22, all predicted the Messiah's death and resurrection centuries before it ever happened. Paul once again is making it clear that the resurrection is a historical factual event. The reason why this miracle can take place is because it does so through the power of God. It is affirmed by eyewitness testimonies. It changes lives and it is, and it is prophesied throughout 
Scripture. But at the same time, at some point, the rubber has to hit the road. At some point, when one is confronted with the truth of the resurrection, we must say, what will I do with this knowledge? What will I do with this truth? And ultimately, we must ask, when it comes to the resurrection, we must ask, so what? What difference does the resurrection of Jesus Christ make? And the only proper response to the resurrection is repentance. Paul makes it clear that the only logical and proper response to the resurrection is repentance. This is what he did and this is what he preaches. Paul did not come to believe in Jesus and remain the same man. Do you notice that? In fact, he became someone completely different. From that point on, he preached that God has commanded all people everywhere to repent. What is repentance? It's a turning away from sin as a whole person and towards God. It does involve a change of mind, but it's far more than having a change of mind. I've gone round and round with people that try, to that try to convince others that repentance is simply a change of mind. Because it's more than to change one's mind. But it involves the change of the mind, the change of the will, the change of emotions that result in a change of behavior. We, say, we, we often try to separate repentance from saving faith. And they're not to be separated because they go hand in hand. You can't have saving faith without repentance. And you do not have genuine repentance without saving faith. If you truly believe in Jesus Christ as the risen Savior, you cannot and you will not remain the same person. In other words, you will turn from your sin and you will turn towards God. Repentance is exactly what Paul proclaims in verse 18 and in verse 20. Let's look at what Paul says concerning repentance here this morning. First, repentance is turning from darkness to light. That's what Paul says. God sent Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light. Verse 18. The best way to explain this is like this. Apart from Christ, all people everywhere are in darkness. Apart from Christ, all people everywhere are in darkness. It does not matter how smart they are. It does not matter how wealthy they are. It does not matter how much they have apart from Christ. They are in darkness. In fact, Scripture says they are darkened in their understanding and they are alienated from the life of God. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18. It says that their minds are blinded by the God of this world and they are kept from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4. It says spiritual things are foolishness to them and they can't even understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. Apart from Christ, all people everywhere are in darkness. Without Christ, they live 
a life that is in darkness. And here's the thing, church. They can't even begin to grasp the holiness of God. It is absolutely foreign to them. And yet often they think they understand it. You could go to someone who is religious, that is lost, and ask them if they understand that God is holy. And they would probably respond with, yes, I understand that God is holy. I am sure this is what Paul would have said before he met the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. He would have said that God is holy. You know why? Because he had an intellectual knowledge of the holiness of God. But he did not have an experiential knowledge of the holiness of God. He was in darkness. However, when he saw the light, literally saw the light, he, it was so bright, he was blinded and he came to the realization that God was truly more holy than he could ever even imagine. What does God tell Moses on Mount Sinai. You can't even look at me. Or you will die. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I will pass by. That's how holy God is. Yet we often try to convince ourselves. That our good deeds are going to allow us to stand before God. Like Paul as a Pharisee. Thinking that our goodness qualifies us. To somehow live into God's holy presence and it's only proof that we don't understand the holiness of God Paul was struck down by by the holiness of God he was undone he didn't know what to do with himself you see when we come into the presence of the light you begin to realize that those good deeds that everything that you've ever done when suddenly the light is shone on them they are filthy rags in the sight of a holy not only did Paul recognize that God was holy, but, but he recognized that he was sinful, far more sinful than he had ever imagined. Before he saw the light, Paul would have said he was a good person. He would have said that he, he, he was a sinner, but probably would have thought he wasn't as bad as those filthy, dirty, rotten, stinking Gentiles. However, when he saw the light... He realized he was exceedingly sinful. He could never get to heaven by his good works. He needed a savior. He was a sinner with a desperate need of atonement. And his good deeds could never pay the price for his sinfulness. In fact, Paul would later write that he was the chief of sinners. Repentance is a turning from the darkness to the light. And repentance is not a one-time deal either. It's not something that you do once and when you receive Jesus as your savior. But it's an ongoing process. It is constantly turning from darkness to light. Now, here's my question. If we are blinded to the truth of the gospel by sin and Satan, how is anyone going to change? How? They're blinded. If we are blinded, we can't see because of the darkness, how are we going to change? You can't. God has to change you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. God brings the change. The gospel gets preached. The light shines in the darkness of the heart. And God gives the knowledge of his glory and of Jesus Christ. It is a complete work of God. Paul was stricken down by the holy light. He wasn't seeking God. He wasn't seeking the truth. He wasn't trying to find the truth. He was stricken down by the holy light. He could not see. And then the risen Lord said that he would open his eyes. Now look at verse 18. Paul went to do what? To open the eyes of the Gentiles. Why? Why did he have to open their eyes? Because they can't see. Only God's power through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ can open the eyes of the spiritually blind church. Repentance is a turning from the darkness to the light. The eyes of the sinner are open to the holiness of God and they realize the depths of their depravity and the abundance of the grace of God that's found only in Christ. And it's an understanding that Christ paid the price and that we don't deserve anything. And his mercy comes and it's found on the cross. Paul was the chief of sinners and he found mercy and so can you it's available for all who repent but not only does not only do we see that paul went to turn from darkness or repentance turns from darkness to light but repentance changes masters from satan to god no one wants to be told to be honest with you that satan is their master Apart from Christ. Just try to go up to someone that doesn't know Christ. But oh Satan's your master. That, that's not. They're not like oh thank you. It feels so great. Thanks for sharing that wonderful news with me. But the truth is we're either mastered by Christ or Satan. Plain and simple. Everyone by their very nature is born into the power of darkness under the mastership of Satan. Everyone is a captive to Satan, seeking only to do the will of Satan. Jesus said we are slaves to sin, meaning sin is our master. Paul says the exact same thing. Church without Christ, Satan is our master and we are slaves and he holds us captive. What are we going to do? You might be thinking, Pastor... Are you saying that my great-grandpa, who was the nicest man I ever knew, but did not know Jesus was mastered by Satan? Yes. That's what I'm saying. The only way to be set free from the captivity of sin and Satan is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if the Son makes you free... You are free. Paul says that God rescues us from darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of light in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. God alone frees us from the clutches of Satan and God alone makes us slaves to righteousness. We are either slaves to Satan and sin or we are slaves to God and his righteousness. That's it. It's one of those. You say, well, what about my child who does not know Christ as their savior? Or what about my mom? Or what about my best friend? Or what about fill in the blank? The scripture is clear that Satan and sin are their masters. I'm not saying that to be mean. But it sure changes things, doesn't it? It sure changes things to look at lost people. Look at your lost relative. 
to look at your lost best friend and understand they're mastered by sin and Satan. Every person that does not know Christ is mastered by Satan, church. What about you? Who's your master? Satan or God? You, you see, repentance changes your master. I'd ask you to examine your life this morning and ask if you've truly repented of your sin. Have you turned from Satan's mastership to God's? Are you mastered by sin or are you mastered by righteousness? Thirdly, repentance removes us from condemnation to forgiveness and errors. Look what Paul says. He says that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Before repentance, we stand under God's just condemnation. That is what scripture says, that if we do not believe, we are condemned already. John chapter 3, verse 18. But the moment we repent and believe in Christ, we are sanctified. We are set apart. God, God grants forgiveness. We're no longer under his condemnation, but are at that very instant, you're made right with God and you are heirs. At the instant we move, at that very instant, we move from condemnation to forgiveness and we are heirs with Christ. We are now in a relationship with Jesus because we are moved from condemnation to forgiveness. And because we are now in a relationship with Christ, we are no longer afraid to come to God because our sin is no longer a barrier because through Jesus Christ, we have access to God through his blood. That's why Hebrews says that we approach the throne boldly. Not because of something in us. It's not like, well, I'm, I'm going to muster up. I'm going to muster up enough courage so that I can really pray this great prayer to God so I can go before the throne of God. Oh, if only I had the, the right words to say, then God would hear me and, and I could come to the throne boldly. That has nothing to do with it. You approach the throne boldly. Not because of something in you, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm just timid. Doesn't matter. You go to the throne boldly because of the blood of Jesus Christ. God bends his ear to hear you call his name. Boldly. He gives you grace. Therefore, if you've turned from your sin and you trusted Christ as your Savior, you now as a believer enjoy the forgiveness of God and you enjoy the spiritual blessing that comes from being in that relationship with Jesus Christ. You now have an inheritance which is to live with God forever in heaven. So repentance is a turning from darkness to light. It's a change of masters from Satan to God. It moves us from condemnation to forgiveness and errors. And lastly, this morning I want to share this with you. Repentance is a change of behavior moving us from sin to deeds proving our repentance. Repentance is a change of behavior moving us from sin to deeds proving our repentance. Now to be honest, this is where it gets really sticky for some people. 
this is where some people want to tune out. This is where some people want to, you know, try to, boy, I need to find something to disprove this. Because oftentimes we like to say things like, well, you just have to believe. You just have to believe. And I, I can't really tell if someone's repented or not. I can't really tell. And, you know, we love to throw the verse around all the time. That says, judge not lest ye be judged yourself. <coughs> Probably the most misused verse in all of Scripture. Look at what verse 20 flies in the face of that mentality. Paul says that he declared to both the Jews and the Gentiles that they should do what? That they should repent and continue to live the life that they've been living all along. It's not what he says, right? And turn to God. And what's he say? Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Church, the message is the same. It does not matter whether you think you're religious like the Jews of the day or you're some sort of pagan like the Gentiles of the day. The message is clear and it is always the same. Repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with your repentance or performing deeds that are appropriate to repentance or performing deeds that prove that you have actually repented. Some might try to say, well, uh, see, this means that good works. But Paul's talking about good works and that's a part of salvation. Paul is clear that works do not save us. We are saved through faith alone by God's grace alone. However, Paul is insistent just like James and just like John the Baptist that if you've received this saving grace, then you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are a consequence of salvation. The proof of genuine repentance in someone's life is characterized by good works. There's no other way to put it than to say that repentance is a change of behavior moving us from sin to deeds that prove that we've repented. Glance down at verse 27. Paul asks Agrippa if he believes the prophets. And then Paul answers him by saying, I know you believe. Because he knew Agrippa had intellectual knowledge of the prophets. And old King Agrippa, he was just like many lost people today. And especially many Americans today. Where there are churches everywhere and perhaps just like many right here in our town of Washington, Illinois. They believe in Jesus intellectually, but it makes no difference in their life. I may be talking to people in this church at this very moment. You believe in Jesus intellectually, it's not made a difference. Paul is preaching repentance, he's not preaching intellectual assent to Jesus. And too often we preach intellectual assent to Jesus. We ask people if they believe in Jesus. And of course they believe in Jesus. Of course they have some sort of intellectual assent 
to Jesus. We could go out here and, and go stand in, at the Kroger or the Walmart or wherever. And we could ask every person that walks in there, hey, do you believe in Jesus? And I guarantee you probably 95% of the people, maybe even greater, would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Because they have an intellectual assent to Jesus. And modern day evangelism has been so great at giving people some sort of intellectual assent. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. We'll say this prayer. They say this prayer, we declare them saved, send them on their way. Repentance means you believe in the risen Savior. Remember Romans 10, 9, talked about it last week. Confess Jesus as Lord and what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. When we believe in the risen Christ, when we truly believe, it changes everything. It changes the entire way we live. And repentance is the only proper response to belief in the resurrection. Instead of living in darkness, we now live in the light of God's holy presence and his word. Instead of being mastered by Satan, we are now mastered by God and he is the Lord of our life. Instead of living for ourselves and the pleasures of sin that are fleeting, we live to please Jesus Christ and glorify his name. You get the picture. Your behavior changes. Look at Agrippa's response. Verse 28. I think the ESV is correct in making it a question. Agrippa says... In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? You see, Agrippa knew that if he answered that he believed in the prophets, that Paul would then ask why he didn't believe in Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. If he said he did not believe in the prophets, the Jews would be upset. And so Agrippa is a good politician. Instead, Agrippa throws away the opportunity to receive forgiveness and he throws away the opportunity to repent. Church, listen, it's time for us as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, it is time for us to stop proclaiming mere intellectual assent to Jesus and start proclaiming that God has commanded all people everywhere to repent and the only proper response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is repentance. It's time for us to start proclaiming that repentance is necessary. So, well, Pastor, that's just not popular. Nobody wants to hear they're a sinner. You're right, no one wants to hear they're a sinner because it doesn't make you feel good. It makes you feel bad. But that's the point because the light has shined into the darkness. And they're trapped in darkness, church. And we got to shine the light into the darkness and proclaim that God has commanded all people everywhere to repent and that you cannot come to Christ apart from repentance of your sin. It's the only proper response to the resurrection. And church, when we decide that we will proclaim repentance, Ain't nobody going to shut us up. We take Washington, Illinois by storm. People get mad. People get upset. Oh, that church, they're, they're, they're telling me I need to repent. Yeah? I'm not talking about legalistic baloney. I'm talking about true repentance from sin. I'm not talking about you going around trying to find something in someone's life. I just mean, hey... This is sin and repentance is what's necessary.
Let me, let's say that you decide to go skydiving. You put on your parachute. You know, you're like, oh, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. You put on your parachute. You jump out of a plane. And you say to yourself, I believe in parachutes. 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 And oops. You have a problem. You see, you can believe in parachutes all you want. But you got to use it. Your obituary says, well, he believed in parachutes, but he wasn't willing to use it. Belief is meaningless unless it's applied. Church, there's a lot of so-called Christians running around saying, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Maybe they even say, I believe in Jesus that he's risen from the dead. I believe in Jesus that he's risen from the dead. I believe in Jesus that he's risen from the dead. And when they die, their obituary will read. They believed in Jesus that he was risen from the dead, but it made no difference. You see, you can believe all you want in the words of James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. If your belief has not led you to a life of repentance from sin, that belief will do you no good. And on the day of judgment, you will hear the words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. O oh, church. Your response to the resurrection must be one of repentance. So I ask you this morning, have you truly repented? Have you turned from darkness to light? Have you changed masters? Have you moved from condemnation to forgiveness? Has your behavior changed in your life? If not, then you can receive God's forgiveness and grace today. And secondly, I'd say this. If you're here as a believer, are you proclaiming repentance as the only response to the resurrection to a city right outside our doors that's lost and dying and condemned to hell? Are you proclaiming repentance? Here in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. We're going to give you a chance to respond. I'd say to you this morning, if you're here and you'd say, Pastor, I believe, but I've never, I've never repented. I've never placed my faith actually in Christ Jesus. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. Or we can do that after the service. And maybe this morning you'd say, Pastor, you know what? I'm not, I'm not proclaiming repentance. I don't even know what I'm doing out there. I'm just kind of doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Would you take the step and say, you know what? It's time for me to start proclaiming repentance. It's time for me to start proclaiming who Jesus is, that God has commanded all people everywhere to repent. If the Lord's spoken to you this morning, I'd be standing there. I'd pray with you, talk with you. We can do that after the service. We can do that later. You can stay in your pew if you need to.
I just want to give you a chance to respond this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll sing, and we'll give you a chance to respond.